I am Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is William Morris, Secretary General of the Next Century Foundation and an expert on Arab affairs. You can find more information about William and the Next Century Foundation on the page for this episode. I'm perhaps a little bit more skeptical than you are mm-hmm. as the effectiveness of the United Nations in this particular area and whether, in fact, the United Nations remains a, an sure. organization viable enough. Viable enough. I mean, the United Nations does a great deal of good work mm-hmm. in a variety of agencies. There's no question about it. Uh, and not because uh, Prince uh, Rajal Hussein, you know, Zaid, he gave up on it. But from my own experience going back many, many years in terms of what the United Nations, in fact, is doing effectively to deal with human rights abuses around, I mean, let's take, for example, the war in Syria. Uh, and, and every resolution that came to the United Nations Security Council was vetoed by Russia that provided an offer any kind of solution to end the, the horrifying conflict. I mean, the human rights abuses in Syria, it's beyond, beyond belief. The, the indiscriminate killing, 100,000 kids being either killed or injured badly. And the United Nations was completely inept totally inept in trying to do something about it. And so so what is the utility of the United Nations in this area? And you have had you know, a great deal of experience in, in this. What can be done? What should be done? Because you don't have another international organization as such that has the, at least in theory, all member states around the world, member of the international communities is part of it. And yet, it's been basically helpless and hopeless. Well, first of all, I don't entirely agree with your premise, which is that um, there are bad guys and good guys in Syria. Basically, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Well, nonetheless, I'm not talking about the civil war as a whole. But it is a civil war in which, for example, both sides kill every prisoner. Every prisoner taken by the so-called Syrian opposition is killed every time. There's no, you will not find, uh, unless they switch sides. So, you know, uh, the abuses are terrible in any civil war. And who's stoking the civil war? Iran, the United States of America, Saudi Arabia, Britain, and you name it, Turkey, you name a country. They're stoking this, this war. And there is nothing worse than chaos. It's not clean war. It's chaos. And uh, we, if we want to go in, go in, get rid of him, and start again. But we don't do that. We, we use proxies, and we play games, and we fund. And, and the, uh, the atrocious missiles and so on used by both sides, the cannons from hell in Aleppo. This but, is all true. But, but so, so you're asking the UN role. The UN role has been... Utterly pathetic. Now they've, well, they, that's my point. That's it. What yeah. I'm saying is, what is the what the United States has done can can do in, now and in the future to change the. I mean, they have been totally United Nations been inept. 
Yes. To do anything. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. All of them have committed horrifying human rights abuses. All parties to the conflict, with no exception. And the war has been a proxy war for the Saudis, for the Iranian, and everybody else is waging this proxy war. And they don't want to touch it themselves. You don't yeah. find a Saudi soldier there. Well, part of the problem with the United Nations is the rapporteurs are not independent. So uh, the present special rapporteur for Syria, um, very nice guy, but he doesn't talk to everybody. He won't talk to everybody. He, under no circumstances will he talk to certain people. Um, he won't talk to uh, military opposition. He won't talk to... He won't talk to ex-Bath types. He won't talk to... Well, he'll talk to some very nasty people. But they have to be nasty people that the international community approves of. So he he's talking with players that are not necessarily the key players. Um, he's cutting it off his dialogue with everybody before you begin. And then he's allowing himself to be held hostage to the people whom, with whom he plays, so that if they withdraw, don't bring anybody else in, you know, because he only deals with the internationally approved opposition clique. And that clique does not necessarily represent very many people in Syria. Exactly. And so, so he's dealing with a small clique of opposition. Um, so he, it's very unfortunate. And then, so the Russians take over. Um, in Astana and so on and create their own process because the UN is is ineffective um, and and when it comes in when he proposes a, makes a proposal it's often a completely ridiculous proposal let's have a ceasefire in Eastern Ghouta a ceasefire very well but unless you take the you're just continuing the pain of Eastern Ghouta unless you take those fighters out and give them some alternative to death which is what they're facing so, um, and then you can have a way forward. So the, 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 the problem of this lack of vision also on the part of the people who are working at the UN. But that said, the UN is a necessary forum. Yeah, well, it's necessary, but, but let's take this gentleman. What's his name again? The Demistura. Demistura, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> he has a given a mandate. Yeah, and he's a nice guy. Uh, he's a fair. nice guy. Yeah, so his but... mandate, you know, go do whatever you can. Now, um, what what sort of mandate was it? That is, that does not have any real muscles. Basically, he's going using pretty much his own judgment, right? To a great extent. And the problem is, he does have a pretty free mandate. But the problem is that you need immense chutzpah, immense moral courage to stand up against the big boys in the, you know, in the Security Council who are telling you what to do and who to back. And, you know, I mean, so you, you're getting America on your shoulder and Russia and these, you know, and you, you, so unless you are of huge courage. But even, yes, but A, I don't know where we find such an individual to begin with. Uh, and, and B, as long as he's dictated to by this big big boys in the mm. United Nations, he's pretty much paralyzed, specifically if he has also the attitude, if he's not reaching out to everyone, mm. how the heck is he going to develop any kind of consensus? No, no that's Th true. This is just not going to happen. So where, do you where, where does the responsibility lies here? With such an individual 
over these so-called bosses have actually said, uh, you know, we want to send you there and see what you can do. Many of his predecessors did not succeed either. They did not have the, no. the courage, the muscles, the, the vision, the, the whatever it takes to do that. But it's, they are constrained by the what the United Nations could uh, give them, you know, what kind of uh, munition mm. they have in yes. order to be going yes. to do that. So, so we're going back to, to the United Nations here. And to, what is going to take? If the United Nations cannot play significant role to reduce this kind of conflict on a global scale, just about everywhere we go. And this, the only international organization as such, what is going to happen when you have, I mean, uh, I'd like to discuss this issue with you. To me, in my view, the United Nations has outlived its usefulness, at least the Security Council. The big problem is that two of the big powers, Britain and America, do not respect the United Nations. They use it and exploit it. And, and the Russian do? Uh, yes, to a point they do. The difference between Britain and America, they are boorish, almost, well not almost, they are rude. They behave uh, like children. Uh, they, they enter a UN debate and, uh, you know, for instance, in the Human Rights Council in Geneva, I've been there. The president, who will be a rotating president, you know, from one country or another, will say, now, everybody cool it and let's have a serious debate. Up will get the British representative and talk, uh, we're talking about Syria now, and they'll make some pompous statement about Syria. The Syrian regime, the Syrian regime, the Syrian regime. The president says, please. And then, then up gets the Saudis, and they start talking about the Iranian regime. The president says, please. And up gets the Iranians, and they talk about the Israeli regime. Mm -hmm. The president says, please, please, let's stop this language. And the Saudis respect that. They stop. They behave themselves. They're more respectful, honorable. The Iranians respect that. They stop. They stop calling. They talk about the Israeli government instead of the Israeli regime. They're respectful. The British still continue. Then the American gets up. Ah, you know, regime, 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 regime. Pejorative kind of language. Um, it's so undignified and so condescending, so pompous. And these pompous twits stand up there representing nations that are supposed to be dignified. So that is an indication of the lack of respect. The Britain, the other day I was in Geneva, Britain called a, a special resolution. There was to be a debate uh, in two days later. Britain called a special meeting on Syria, on the East Ghouta issue. Came up with the same language. Everybody was dragged in for this thing. And you expected some resolution. They had no resolution to put before people apart from... I mean, we were discussing East Ghouta a couple of days later. Uh, they had... Why had they dragged us all together to just because they wanted to drag us all together for nothing, with no resolution of any significance to put before the United Nations, except we condemn, you know. I oh, mean, that's, that's, yeah, I we mean, condemn. Everything is a condemnation, and there was no, nothing follow. Yeah. Nothing happened. So. so, but it is a forum that if it were respected by Britain and America and used properly, then others would begin to use it better. Uh, but it's the bad example set by Britain and America that is very destructive of the UN process. 
and a UN can be um, can be effective, I believe. And it's a platform in which the whole world comes together, and there is no other. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. The only thing is, you know, this United Nation is what forty six uh, now fifty four seventy two years old. Am I right? But any organization well, no, is well, only as good as its members. No, no, but it also has to has to has to evolve and develop with time. Mm. When the United Nations was created, you know, then, 1946, I believe, right? Am mm. I right? Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it was in post-war. We had the League of Nations. League of Nations before and then And then became the United Nations. So you have these mm. powers, you know, the victors, yes. France, and, and, and of course yeah. England was part of the process, and they, they became, and they accorded this, the NATO, uh, mm. the veto sure. power. Now, time has changed. That the United Nations Security Council today does not represent international community by any stretch of imagination, yeah. even though you have 10 rotating members every two years. But the five permanent members that have the can wield the veto power do not represent the international, the, the, the global community as has changed since 70 years ago. Yes. So, in my view, if you want to have a more effective United Nations, let's look at the international community and say, shouldn't there be one? Country, major country that represent the Arab or the Muslim world, say, say Indonesia. Shouldn't we have another country from here, like, like India, to be there, or Brazil, you know, from to represent the this this the uh, Amer as South permanent America. members of the Security Council as a, as a member of the Security Council, and so you have now global representation of made of the main main religious or say whatever you want to call it in the Security Council. If you were to do that you will have more than four or five billion people represented in the Security Council. They were the one who will have a... Uh, no, I, I, I disagree. I think the... Think of, think of, and instead of one person, one power can put a veto, use a veto, you'll have put two. Of course, who's going to do that? Because the Security... Not the Nations Security Council need to agree to dismantle themselves. That's not going to happen. Mm. What I'm saying, really, United Nations need to reform itself. And, and, and as long as it is not reformed itself, you can blame Britain and France, but I don't exempt Russia and China from being obstructionist as well. No, of I'm course, not covering, absolutely. I'm not covering for Britain. And, no, and no, 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 Russia and China yeah, are very, ex very obstructionist. obstructionist. So, yeah. so yeah. for this reason, the United Nations Security Council really lost and its, its, very, its meaning because peacekeeping, peacemaking, which is one of the function, but they didn't have really enforcement mechanism no. to make things happen. The UN Security Council is very like Hamas. Yeah. You know, Hamas is is like a, a, a table with four legs, yeah. and it has the, the prisoners, and it has the uh, the, Gar the Gazans, and then it has the outsiders, mm -hmm. and then it has the military. Yeah. And these four legs... And and you have, you have for a mass to do anything, uh, these four legs have to all stand together. You take one leg away, the table falls that's over, right, right. and they and they find it very difficult to get agreement. The UN Security Council, the table with five legs or five permanent members, and and you know just one stepping aside and the table falls over. The UN Security Council is a pain in the neck. It's okay. a real problem, so, so but. Making it bigger is not necessarily the solution because you have even more people who can be actors. No, no, what I'm saying is bigger in the sense that it's more representative of the international community. After all, 
why should you have a France, not India? Why should you have England, not, not Brazil? Why should you have uh, not in Indonesia? These are representatives of a much larger uh, you know, global community. At least you would have South America represented, you have Africa represented, you have the Muslim world is represented. Why shouldn't they be represented? I mean, time has come. I, I, this is how I see it. <clears throat> would it be more more effective, more useful? Probably. Or would it be... Uh... Probably. I mean, would it be more effective to get rid of the UN Security Council altogether and yeah. just have the General Assembly make resolutions? And and but then you see the General Assembly is too radical, isn't it? It, it hasn't got you can't. There's nobody to veto it, and then it comes out with resolutions you would not like. Yeah, and like they have been doing this all yeah. along. I think so. it's changed there. I mean, they come up with these resolutions yeah. after a resolution for the sake of passing resolutions. So and, we're stuck uh, back with the system yeah, we've got. Yeah. If we if we can't trust the General Assembly to make sensible choices, then we're stuck with this rather inept little... I mean, it's unfortunate. It's not good enough. And it's, it's, it's a bad system. But it would be better if the big players were more respectful in their use of it I and agree. gave true authority to people like Dimastura and told him off if he wasn't exercising that authority, then we, we'd have a real progress. It's potential there. But the exercise of, of authority require backing, tremendous exactly. amount of backing, and enforcement. Yeah. yeah. Both are missing. Both are, do not exist. In theory, yes, the, he has the back end of the Security Council to go ahead and do his thing. But if he isn't, there's hardly any... What, what, how? No, originally, the yeah. concept of a Security Council was based on the responsibility to protect. Yeah. And there was supposed to be a UN yeah. army, yeah. not a, a true That's UN right. army. That was the original concept. Um, that was not an army seconded from nation states, but was a permanent army associated with the United Nations. And it was on that basis that the Security Council was formed and the big players were supposed to be paying for that. It hasn't happened. And um, But never mind, if we gave people true authority and backed them up, I mean, getting a man to do a job and then or a woman to do a job, doesn't matter, whoever, somebody, you choose somebody to do a job, then support them and don't try and pull the rug from out, from under them. Uh, but um, it's it's there's there's the possibility. But it let, let me just go back to this where we started in terms of human rights. You know, if the United Nations is unable to deal with it effectively, I mean, look at the war in in, in Yemen, the situation in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq, and on and on and on. And the United Nations is thus far has been inept. Going back to Prince Zed, and I spoke with him last time, and I said, alone, it's an uphill. There is, no matter what I say, no matter what, no one is listening. Either, what he says makes a huge difference. I'm sorry. I listened to what he said. I, I don't know the man personally. I listened to what he said. It inspired me. 
He was inspirational. Yeah, he was inspirational. And the whole world had to listen. But and he, the and some of the Arab nations were biting their tongues in rage, yeah. but they had to listen. He took that commission he'd been given and used it. He and used it, and uh, that's the, the his frustration comes of the fact that he used it, but as, as he saw it, to no avail. No, he's wrong. He's wrong. That's he has he made said. a huge difference. He's Where? made a huge difference to the hearts and minds of the people that go there, to the NGOs that turn up, to people like me. He has inspired us. He's made, gave us energy and felt that there's somebody who really cares at the head of the UN Human Rights Council. I'm sorry. Hey, wake he, up, Prince Day. You've made he, a difference. Don't wuss out now. But he himself does not feel that well, he's done. Well, you tell him. Yeah, that he's done. That, that he's done his best, and he was inspiring, and I agree with you one hundred percent. Well, he has made a difference. He's made a colossal difference, and and, and and if he can't recognize this time, he did recognize it and get on with the work. He is. Uh, I mean, that said, I don't think he's going to be reelected, but never mind. I don't think he wants to. I'm sorry. It, it, come on, you've got it. It's not a question of wanting to. Sometimes in life. You're given responsibility by God and you fulfill it whether you want to do it or not. He has done a great job and I, he should not throw the towel in. If they make if they if they get rid of him, fine. They're but, not getting rid of him. He doesn't want to do it. Uh, he, no, he's got no, to a point. He basically feels not burned. Good enough. I'm sorry. He feels no, burned. Of course he does. He he's, he's had a hard struggle. Uh, but that man has been inspiring and you should never Never, I, I mean, uh, listen. I, if I were to advise him, and I would say to him, "Don't, mm. you know, don't leave it." Do well, whatever well, to advise him, uh, yeah, you know no, him. I don't. But, I, I mean, I know him for fifteen years from him ambassadorship one to the other. I think he's we a talked great about man. just about everything possible about the region, the human rights, and all of that. I went to see him in Geneva when he was there. Mm. I mean, you know, he is amazing fellow, wonderful, brilliant in every which way as a human being. And that's, I think, no one suit the, that position better than Prince Ed. No, it's brilliant. And then the reason I mentioned that and dwelling on it a little bit, when you have someone like that, of that stature, of that knowledge, mm. of that commitment and feeling and concern, and you eventually he get disillusioned. Well, he, that's because not enough telling people are telling him what a good job yeah. he's doing. Yeah, that's and and it is a great job he has yeah. done, yeah. and he shouldn't get disillusioned because it it makes a difference to the hearts and minds of all the. I mean, a lot of us are little people struggling to do our best, and we when somebody when you have somebody you can respect in leadership on human rights, uh, and there there are. So many people are just not good enough around, and you know, then you've got somebody you can respect. And uh, I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, nations were fearful of what he was going to say. He, he's he been a huge force, that man, yeah, and, yeah. Um, but when I'm saying this is true, except that, except I mean, in realistically, however. That you, you could didn't see a real change. Oh wait, no! Uh, wait a come second. on, it's yeah. a huge change. Where? That man. Show, show me. You got? You no, got... no. But I'm I'm not being facetious or, or no. I am sorry. I'm... But I mean, to me, to me, when you're talking about human rights and these, I see these abuses in every <coughs> which way. They're abuses, of course. They're abuses, and people will continue but, to be mean I, and I, nasty. I, 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 but tell me, where do you see 
I mean, I'm sure he had some serious impact, and no question. Uh, but it is not visible enough for people to see. How can it be more visible? The man has his reports are outstanding. They call everything into question. They they they're this probing. This is all true, and, and and this is hugely visible. Um, I mean, but countries... I'm talking about interpretation effectively. How did that? Of course, it's not effective. his fault. It's not his fault. Of uh, course, no, I'm it's just effective. If where no, what I'm saying is where, where did that happen? Actually, it made a huge difference on the ground. It makes a difference. I mean, you're if you're um, theoretically let's say, yes. no theoretical. Forget it. If you are some human rights group in Turkey looking at freedom of the press or something, uh, if you're a human rights group in Iran looking at uh, trying to deal with prisoners' issues. If you're, if you're a human rights group in Libya trying to deal with the killing of um, prisoners of war, or whatever it might be, the various the thousand and one tragedies on the face of the earth today, and you have a man at the head of the human, UN Human Rights Organization that is boldly and bravely talking about your problems on the international stage, bringing this to the attention, that gives you heart because you may be imprisoned for, you know, and you want to know that somebody's listening. Uh, you know, you want to know that you're not dying in the dark. And the fact that Prince Zaid is taking up these issues, you feel you are, I you agree. matter, your voice matters. It I, gives you heart to continue. I agree with you on that. What I'm saying, nevertheless, look what happened in these various countries that a human right abuses are such a gross, such an acceptable... Yeah, well, they would be worse yeah. if you didn't have people like this at the well, head of the has been getting we, worse. No. Turkey, take Turkey, has been getting worse. Iran has been getting worse. Syria has been getting worse. Yemen has been getting worse. They're just a fact. Well, yes and no. I mean, it can, it can feel like that. If feel you like talk, that. You just, no, 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 wait a minute. If you're just talking... It is like two steps back for one step forward. But remember, we're now, I remember our parents and our grandparents who lived in the 20th century, the most blood-soaked century in human history. I mean, six million Jews, countless, countless people. Uh, the, the, the wars in Korea, Vietnam, you know, the Second World War, the First World War, the the, I, the 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 massacres in Africa, the Hutsi and the Tutsi, the 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 slaughter of the twentieth century, the unremitting slaughter on a colossal scale, and maybe things are we don't feel it because we're too close to it, especially you and I dealing with the Middle East. Maybe actually things are slowly getting a little better, and if we can just hold on with hope in our hearts. And as long as there are men like Prince Zaid at the head of the United Nations to in help inspire us, maybe, maybe we're, we are moving. It doesn't seem like it, but maybe we're well, moving into a better yeah, place. I mean, you know, if I were to ask you five, six years ago to imagine the atrocities that are taking place in Syria, would you have believed it after all of these years, after the experiences that you cited so well in, by the World War II, what happened there? I mean, that was the bloodiest century ever, right? Did we, could you possibly imagine a situation like this? Slaughter of half a million people and some 
take place at this international citizen community so-called still sitting on its hand that's what i'm talking about that's what i that's really yeah, what bothers I mean, me we... i mean i don't want to talk about the collective i am interested in finding solution to something that breaks my heart every time i hear about it yeah many things good great happening elsewhere but if we are unable to solve something of this magnitude and perhaps settle for the fact that things are better on the whole when you're talking globally on a global scale i personally don't buy that i want to see solution to end the slaughter of, of little boys and girls i want to see in yemen or in syria that's where united nations in my view fail miserably the fact that and you are absolutely right i agree with you things are much better in the larger scale but as long as these things still happen that's a dismal failure of the international community as we know it it is and it's uh, it is the united nations but it is specifically many of the great powers who are the big game players and um and i'm sorry but i mean you look at yemen it's our responsibility yours and mine here in the west we i mean we elect our governments they're doing what they're doing who's i, I mean, agree i agree i mean yeah. west we the united states the european we contributed to this directly. You can go back from the colonial era. To me, when I look at radicalization... No, but even today, right now, right we're now, Yeah, right now. But we, the West, planted the seed of what we are har harnessing today in the Middle East. That's where it all started, in my view. The way the colonial power treated these countries from to start with in the wake of World War II. This is where it started. I mean, the, the hatred toward the West is going back for a number of generations. And the abuse of the colonial power of these countries, and then leaving them and installing these ruthless kings and emirs and leaders in, in their wake. This is where they come well, from. It's, yes, it's also the ruthless kings and emirs and leaders, but it's also our continual meddling, yes. our continual sales of arms exactly. and weapons, and, yeah. and the most unpleasant weapons, too. Yeah. Um, no, I mean... We are the merchants of death. Yes. This is what we did. This is what he's done. And that is the United Nations, which is created on the premise, peace and order and, and human rights and all of that. Mm. Um, the powers to be basically uh, destroy, philosophically destroy that, the human dimension that was supposed to be the, so, the, the banner of the United Nations. Okay, so it's a broken system. It's not good enough. It's the only system we've got uh, that brings the international community together. We can't really reinvent the wheel. No, we no, I don't think we should in, in, in destroy it or dismantle mm. the United Nations. I'm looking in terms of should we really be stuck and not try to do something about it to make it more effective, to be consistent with our times. Yes, no, I'd agree with that. We that's, all reform. that's really all I'm saying. Well, all right, let's, on that basis, we'll agree with the UN needs reform. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, very good. Oh, man, you are a wonderful conversationist <laughs> with a tremendous knowledge. Listen, 
I'm learning a great deal from you. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> oh, well, well, but up to you. We can go on. Do you want to go yeah. on or do you want to quit, call it quits? What do you would like to do? No, no, we, we, can, we can take just one example, perhaps, from mm. the Middle East. Sure. Uh, let's leave the Israeli-Palestinian conflict aside. Yes, okay. <laughs> that's the ongoing saga yeah, yeah. for 70 years old saga, and I don't see how that's going to change anytime soon. But uh, I'd like to have your take on the Sunni-Shiite conflict. Hmm. Uh, and this, the Sunni-Shiite conflict is a proxy war between the Sunni and the Shiite taking place still in Iraq, to great some hmm. extent, still in Syria. And elsewhere, in the, definitely in Yemen, definitely sure. places like that. And as long as Saudi Arabia and Iran are at odds, and both are fighting for so-called hegemony because they do not want to relinquish mm. their influence mm. and power in the yeah. Gulf in particular, I my assessment of the Sunni-Shiite conflict is something that's going to go on for years, if not decades. Let's see if we agree on that premise and we can take it from there. I agree, um, unless we get some visionary thinking from one of the key figures. And at the moment, the figure we're looking for is Mohammed bin Salman. If he could, if he could be persuaded to bring the Middle East to peace, um, then I think we can persuade key figures on the Iranian side. Um, but it's difficult. There is the people are angry and with yeah. understandable, understandably angry because yeah. the Iranians misbehave. But, uh, but it's a shame. Um, the question is, uh, you know, it's obviously a religious conflict in, in, in the core. And you cannot reconcile that. In my view, you, know, you cannot reconcile the, 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 the core conflict between the Sia and the Sunni and the Shia. Something has been going on for 1400 years. The core is there. That is in terms of interpretation, succession to power and all of that. What I'm saying, the Sunni-Shiite conflict has been somewhat dormant for a long, long, you know, they were always under the current some conflicts, but there was no overt, you know, proxy war that is going on like we've seen in the last 15, 20, 30 years uh, since the Iranian revolution. And the sort of the now it's open, and and I don't see you mentioned Mohammed bin Salman that he's thinking in terms of Iran is Iran we are stuck with Iran we're stuck with the Shiite in Iran, and this Iranians Ayatollah thinking in terms of we are stuck with the Sunnis, and like President Obama said, well you guys don't have a choice you've got to share the neighborhood. That's what Obama basically, I think he's right. Because neither side can get rid of the other anyway, just like Israeli and Palestinian. They're stuck. They're basically stuck. Yes, but and, and you were right from one perspective that it's a Sunni-Shiite argument. Uh, I remember in, um, in Northern Ireland, people used to say it's a Protestant-Catholic argument. And they were right, to a point. It was also almost tribal. It was oh, almost, yeah. yeah, you know, it was like, like, I'm on this team, I'm on this football team, he's on that football team, we hate each other. It was kind of, it was, it, you know, and, and you, there, there are occasions when we see similar situations, for instance, in former Yugoslavia, 
where the Bosnians and the Serbs, after years of communism, decide to go head to head. They speak the same language. They just one writes it in that's Cyrillic right, script, right, the other yeah, one writes it in right, yeah. Western. They know you talk, you ask you ask a Bosnian, you know, Muslim what the four pillars or five pillars of Islam are or whatever it is, you know, he won't have the foggiest idea. You ask, uh, it might now, but then, back then they didn't. You ask a Serb, um, supposed Christian, um, you know, who's the mother of Jesus or something, you know, you, you, they, they really, it was such a secular society, that, but yet they decided to divide along religious lines. I mean, um, now you're talking about the Sunni-Shiite divide in the Middle East. Take the smallest of these contests. Take Bahrain. Now, Bahrain is a, a city-state, really, mm -hmm. with a population uh, I mean, not much more than Washington. You know, it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 minute. Yes, uh, four uh, four hundred thousand only citizens, and the rest are all tourists. Okay, well there you go. That's about and, it. <laughs> and and these people, they're divided into two camps, yeah. like two football teams. Uh, they all they're all went to school together. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean. And yet they're at loggerheads. And, uh, and what instigated that? You know, here you go. This is a perfect example. You know, you, you couldn't hear about real conflict between the Sunni and the Shia in Bahrain. Of course, the Shia is a little majority mm -hmm. in Bahrain itself. But they went to school together. They intermarried. Mm -hmm. Everything is wonderful. And then all of a sudden, what happened? Well. Good, you're yeah. right. I mean, there are two. There are Which means the, the, the conflict, it still always has been somewhat dormant under the surface. When Iran came in and agitated the whole thing, it's it ripe. It was there. All you needed to do is give it a little push. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is they need to come up eventually to the conclusion, it is what it is. We believe in what we believe. And we cannot change that. That's the logic, obviously. But how do you apply logic to religion? Well, you can, I think. Um, there, is, there are elections in Bahrain later this year. Uh, the, we could have um, some sort of power-sharing agreement uh, whereby the opposition, such as it is, could, could stand and partake fully in the elections in the, in, the, in the full hope and knowledge that they would have some genuine attempt at power sharing as things moved forward. Um, but the opposition are undermined partly by Iran, um, which is yeah. telling them, don't stand, don't participate. And right. uh, they, they have a situation in Bahrain where they have the longest serving prime minister in the world and the longest serving opposition leader in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's... Not to say both either both of these are very good men, but um, we need a little vision. We need a little. It wouldn't take much, actually, I believe, for the great powers to meddle positively instead of meddling negatively, and you know, little little sensitive yeah. Yeah. discussion with Iran and persuading it to actually help. A little sensitive discussion indeed with Saudi Arabia persuading it to because it's both sides uh, if the you know the Saudi Arabia is fearful of concessions in Bahrain it affects its own position 
and it's you know it's it's, it's this is to accept that you know uh, you are invited when they have a, when there's a problem you know usually what happens Iran expands its influence by create by agitating by creating sure. problems sure. and so they are invited to come come help us. This is what Iran has done in Yemen. This is what Iran is doing elsewhere. Uh, so they create problems so that that pave the way for them to well, come in and do some you, kind the, of salvation. Iran is trying to get more involved in Yemen now, but Iran you can't really blame Iran for the genesis of this, uh, the Yemen say, problem. I'm not saying blaming necessarily. What no. I'm saying is the method of intervening, when you suggest, and I agree with you, instead of being destructive force coming from that side, be positive force to try to ameliorate mm -hmm. and change and improve the conditions, etc. But that is not usually the way it is. Interference come out of, they create the need for them to come in mm -hmm. through agitation, through conflict, through radicalization, financial need, all of this. That way it become more relevant, more important to be invited. Yeah, you're, you're right. I was speaking to a Syrian friend of mine, and he said, uh, you know, our country, our poor country, so much chaos. All we'd like, all we'd really like is just for one year. Leave us alone. Yeah, all of you go away. Everybody That's go right. away. Leave us alone. Don't leave us alone and, and we'll sort it out. We'll sort it out. Just go away. Yeah, exactly. You know. Um, That's the point. Yeah. And we don't know how to do that. <laughs> no, <don't. laughs> Oh, dear. Oh, bless you, Alan. Thank you so much. No, You're thank perfect. you. It's a pleasure. It's always mine. Oh, thank you. bless your heart. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.